truly speak to us. That you would remind us that we are wanted by you. That through your Son we are accepted. That you are fully satisfied with the sacrifice that He made upon the cross. And so you can be fully satisfied with us this morning. God, we are grateful. And so just stir us up now. Call us into a deeper relationship with you. Show to us through your word, your transforming power in the lives of disciples. And then remind us today that you are the same God. And you have given us the same spirit. And that you want to do that same wonderful work in us. So Lord, I ask that you would author my thoughts and my words now. And everything I say would be directly from you and none of it from me. We ask this together in the name of Jesus. Amen. It says here in our text that Jesus went up on the mountain and we know from one of the other gospel accounts that he prayed all night. And then he summoned those whom he wanted after speaking to the Father all night, seeking the will of the Father. He came down in the morning and he summoned those whom he wanted. That is to say that he and the Father had chosen after a night of prayer some men. And when we read the Gospels and we study the lives of the men, we think it interesting that the Father chose these men out of all the men in Israel. And yet we find it comforting that He chose these men out of all the men in Israel because we can relate to these guys. They were normal when He chose them. They had problems. They had attitudes. They had flaws. And so do we. Amen, hooray, and hurrah. And we're reminded from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, that God chooses, not God has no other choice but to use, but God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. But when God chooses someone who is foolish, as He chose the disciples and He's chosen you and I, when He chooses a fool, that fool is called to be with Him. That is the very calling or the very essence or nature of the calling of God and the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. Not only that we can be with God now, but that He wants us to be with Him and we ought to be. And so that is, so, uh, that is why it is so important that we remember as a congregation and as a community and as brothers and sisters to read our Bibles and pray every day. To read our Bibles and pray every day. Because that is communing with God. When we read His Word, He speaks to us. He reveals to us His nature and His person and His plans and His will and His precepts. And when we pray, we speak to Him and He answers us once again by His Holy Spirit in the quietness of our hearts. And so because we're called to be with Jesus, it's very important that we read our Bibles and pray every day. I was at a youth pastor's conference this week and there was a speaker who said that and he made all of us repeat it. Read your Bible and pray every day. Hello? Read your Bible and pray every day. You did much better than all the youth pastors, I'll tell you that. Another reason why that is so important is that it is through the study of the Word and communing with God in prayer that our lives are transformed. We saw last week that it was through James and John's communion with the Lord, their being with Him, that they were transformed from sons of thunder to disciples of love. And we talked about what an amazing transformation it was. It's very important in these last days that we read and uh, read and pray every day because Daniel said 
in the last days. The people who know their God will be strong and attempt great exploits. In the last days, Daniel the prophet said, the people who know their God shall be strong and attempt great exploits. He also said, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Those living in this day who know their God because they read their Bible and pray every day and draw near to Him, will attempt great exploits for Him. That is a wonderful life. And those who lead many to righteousness will shine forth like the stars or the firmament of heaven. That's pretty cool. Turning now to Psalm 119. We see the psalmist here, most likely David, Speaking of the greatness of God's Word and David's affection toward it, so to speak. Psalm 119, verse 97. Psalm 119, verse 97, the psalmist writes, Oh, how I love thy law, referring to the Word of God. It is my meditation all day long. All day long, God, I'm thinking about your Word. Thy commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine or with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed thy precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep thy word." I have not turned aside from thy ordinances, for thou thyself hast taught me how sweet are thy words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth, from thy precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's very important that we develop a passion for the Word of God. It's very important that you find for yourself a Bible that is just the right size for you, the right translation for you, big enough words that it doesn't strain your eyes, and you develop a love relationship with it. That you take it everywhere you go, that when you rise in the morning, you open it up not just to see a book, but to meet the living God in the pages, because we are living in the last days. We are living in crazy times, and it is necessary that we have insight from the Word of God. It is necessary that we have wisdom from the Word of God. It is necessary that His Word becomes to us a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path because we're living in a day that is dark and wicked and evil. And so we need to dwell in the light. Beyond that, we need to have our minds transformed by the Word of God. Paul wrote in the book of Romans chapter 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to this world or the ways of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, one of the biggest things we know about this world is that it breeds in humanity arrogance, pride, and self-seeking. The ideology of the world is I'm number one, I've got to look out for number one, and I've got to get my own. 
at the expense of all others. It's all about me. That is the ideology of the world. That is what the world and the God, little g of this world, Satan, wants us to believe and wants us to act upon. I, me, my, myself. Get my own. God and His Spirit and His Word are contrary to that very thing. And that is why it is so important that we open up the Word and have our minds transformed by the Holy Spirit working through the Holy Word that we might be renewed. Because there is a fact that when the Word goes in, the dirt comes out. Say that with me. When the Word goes in, the dirt comes out. Maybe again. When the Word goes in, the dirt comes out. Because if you're like me, you've got a lot of junk on the inside. A lot of dirt on the inside. Jesus said that that which comes forth from the mouth is spoken from the overflow of the heart. Next time you drop a washing machine on your toe, watch and see what comes out of your mouth. That is the overflow of your heart. If it comes from here and it's wrong, it's crooked, it's perverse, uh, that's coming from here. And the only thing that is going to deal here, with here, is the two-edged sword that is living and active and sharp and able to go deep and to judge between thoughts and intentions, and that is the Word of God. And so when that sword of the Word of God goes into our very heart, it purges out the dirt. When the Word goes in, the dirt comes out. Now I say all this because we have before us today a very challenging topic. And no amount of teaching, no amount of eloquent speaking, of which I don't do, uh, no amount of exposition can rightly convince us to adhere to what we're going to learn today. It can't change us from what we are into what God wants us to be as will be revealed in the Word today. That's why we have got to come now seeing that God's Word is inerrant and that it is authoritative and that it is living and that it is active and that the Holy Spirit works through the Holy Word of God to bring holy changes to our lives. And now we've got to approach these words today as disciples, not merely as hearers of the word, but doers of the word. A disciple is someone that comes to the word of God, and when they read it, they say, okay, this is now the rule for my conduct. Because God said it, I believe it, that settles it, this is what I'm going to do. And what we'll look at today as we further study the life of James and John is humility and servanthood. I need not go any further than say the two words Then I feel little Holy Spirit jabs in my own heart, in my own ego, in my own conscience, in my own spirit. Humility, ouch, and servanthood. Oh no. For three years, the disciples walked with Jesus every single day. And he had expressed to them in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, what his main lesson was to be for them. He said, learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart. That was to be the primary thing, or at least a tantamount thing that they would learn from Jesus, was to be gentle and humble in heart even as he was. Jesus revealed this to him in his very person, where he said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And he said, I am among you as one who serves. And he even, at the Last Supper there, 
got down on his hands and knees and washed the filthy feet of the disciples. They're the God of the universe. Think of the person that is living right now that you respect and revere most. Can you imagine if you, after the dirtiest working day, all barefoot in the garden or whatever it was, you just had the worst case of stink foot in history, if that person came and got down on their hands and knees and just began to wash your feet. Oh, that just grades against our pride. It's just difficult to us for, to, for us to receive. But that is what the God of the universe did for His men, the disciples. And He did it, He said, as an example that they ought to do the same to others. And if the God of the universe could get down and scrub some filthy feet, so can you and I. Both literally and figuratively. So can you and I. But even though he said, learn from me, I am gentle and humble in spirit. Even though he said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Even though he said, I am among you as one who serves. Even though he washed their feet as an example. We see that the disciples during the duration of the gospel never learned that lesson. It wasn't until after the day of Pentecost that these men who are so much like you and I, proud and arrogant and puffed up and excited about themselves and big-mouthed in every way, it wasn't until then that they became humble servants. Even James and John, the sons of thunder about which we've been speaking, their lesson is not to be divorced from, but is as remarkable as their transformation from sons of thunder to disciples of love, as remarkable as that was the remake from self-seekers to slaves of all, is just as amazing. Turn now to Mark chapter 10 as we see it played out. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 35. Here's our two guys. And James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, also known as the sons of thunder, came up to Jesus saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. There's that attitude revealed. There is why Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder. Jesus, we've worshipped you at times. We've knelt down before you. We've seen you raise the dead. We saw you walk on water. We've seen you still the storm. All these different things. But we want you to do whatever we ask. What's more amazing than that is the answer of the Lord. Verse 36. And Jesus said to them, All right, what do you want me to do for you? There's a real lesson in that. God is wanting to do for us more than we think He is. He said even to these guys, what do you want me to do? And then they said in verse 37, Grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. Jesus, we want to be leaders. Not just leaders. We want to be the key men. We want to sit on your right and on your left. When you come into your kingdom, we want to be the main guys. We want to be number one and number two after you. Jesus, you're the man, but we want to be your men. Verse 38. But Jesus said to them, 
you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, sure, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John, and calling them to himself. Jesus said to them, You know, that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not to be so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It is not amazing to me that James and John came to him and said, Jesus, we want to be number one and number two. That doesn't surprise me in the least because that is human nature. Human nature in its fallen state in this world system always seeks to exalt itself above others. We always want to push the other person down and exalt ourselves. We are always wanting that. That is how we are. But it amazes me that they vocalize this to the Lord. And that is why they were called the sons of thunder. These guys had some real guts. Lord, you're going to do what we ask you to do. We want to be number one and number two. Gee whiz. We see that this was the disciple, really. I mean the disciple. We see that this was the desire of all of the disciples. Turn back one chapter to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, that is Jesus, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? In other words, as Jesus and the disciples were traveling down the road, the disciples had been having a discussion. And Jesus said, uh, hey guys, what were you talking about? Now, of course he knew what they were talking about. The Bible's very clear that Jesus knew the heart of men. But he wanted to draw something else here. What were you discussing on the way? Verse 34. But they kept silent. Oh, nothing. Really? I could have sworn I heard you guys saying something. Oh, no, nothing, Lord. For on the way they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. Certainly James and John were walking down the road with Peter and Andrew and Thaddeus and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas. And he was saying, James and John, hey, uh, you guys know that we're number one and number two. You understand this, right? He calls us the sons of thunder. We're number one and number two. And Peter go, no way, man. I'm the rock. I'm the one. And Thomas would say, oh, I doubt that very much, Peter. And Matthew would say... Verse 35. And sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, if that's really what you want. If you guys really want to be leaders, if you want to see who is the greatest, if you want to see who is the greatest in the kingdom of God, if you want to be first, then he shall be the last of all and the servant of all. <laughs> 
There it is. We see the disciples arguing about this topic again in Matthew chapter 18. They came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, another time, not the same time, another time, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This argument's killing us. We just got to know. Tell us plain, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And we're told in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, that Jesus grabbed a young child. It's very clear in the Greek that he was a very young child, possibly even an infant. And so Jesus grabbed this young child and he said, whoever humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of God. So he said so far, That whoever wants to be first shall be last of all and shall be the servant of all and that he must humble himself even as a little child. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? That's the greatest. Again, Luke chapter 22, on the eve of the crucifixion, Jesus has already knelt down and washed their feet. He has already had this um, last supper where he instituted communion. He took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. He took the cup and said, this is a cup of a new covenant. My blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins for many. He's washed their feet. He's told them about the cross. He's spoken of the sacrifice. They took the last supper, this amazing night. And then at the end of the night, once again, it says in Luke twenty-two twenty-four. 24, And there arose among them a dispute as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. These guys are absolute morons. And Jesus said, Again, let him who is greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the servant. Look, I am among you as one who serves. Over and over again, the Lord told them the way to be the greatest because it was truly their heart's desire. They really desired to be first. So it doesn't surprise me that James and John asked this. It just kind of surprised me that they did it in such a bold way, but they are the sons of thunder. But I want you to see now, as we return to our text in Mark chapter 10, how Jesus deals with a self-seeking attitude. James and John came. They were self-seeking, assertive, desirous of glory and power. And what Jesus does here is He attempts to redirect their focus from self-serving to sacrifice, from asserting self to denying self, from glory to suffering, from power to humiliation. He wants to redirect their focus. He wants to get their mind on the attitude, on the things, on the way that is important. And so he says again in verse 38, you do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? Now what is Jesus talking about when he says, are you able to drink this cup? The cup was a common Jewish metaphor for either joy that came from the Lord and the blessings of the Lord or divine judgment against sin. It either spoke of great joy as it does in Psalm 23 where it says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all my days and my cup will overflow this, that, and the other. We see in the Old Testament my cup is overflowing, speaking of joy, but we also see in the Jewish metaphor 
that sometimes they said, and we will drink the cup of the wrath of God. So it was significant, meaning God's divine judgment. Are you able to bear the weight of the sins of the world, even as I? Put very simply, are you able to handle the cross, even as I will voluntarily go to the cross? So that is what the cup is speaking of, is that absolute self-denial and self-sacrifice, Jesus humbling himself to the point of death upon a cross. And then he says, are you able to be baptized with the same baptism? And um, baptized simply means to be underwater. And we do it a lot of different ways nowadays. But it was an Old Testament picture for being overwhelmed by calamity. They would speak of being underwater or being baptized with calamity, with all this bad stuff, all this sin really. And Jesus here was speaking of His sufferings and how He would suffer on the cross in our place. And so He says to James and John, let me redirect your attitude here. You're self-seeking. I'm looking for you to be self-sacrificing. You're wanting glory. I'm looking for you to be mindful of suffering. You're asserting self. I'm looking for you to deny self. You're looking for power. You ought to be looking for humiliation. Are you able to pick up your cross daily and deny yourself? And then he says amazingly in verse 39. They said sort of... (laughs) naively, yeah, we're able to do that. And then Jesus confirms, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Both James and John would give their lives for the gospel. James and John would leave the family fishing business and all they know, and they would fall after the Lord, follow after Him, they'd lay it all down, and James would have the opportunity to serve the Lord faithfully for 14 years after the ascension. And then he would be the first of the 12 disciples to be martyred for his faith. Herod would have him beheaded. John, as we spoke of last week, would have the opportunity to lay down his life to serve the Lord for 70 years, going from region to region, establishing church after church after church, and he would be exiled from from Ephesus to Rome, and there in Rome, they put him in a boiling pot of oil, and he did not boil by the grace of God. And so taking him out of the oil, what else could they do? They exiled him to the island of Patmos. That wasn't such a good idea. There he received the book of Revelation from the Lord not knowing what to do with the guy he finally went back to Ephesus and he died an old man who had given the fullness of his life and so Jesus said you will drink that cup you will experience what it means to strive against sin you will experience what it means to stand in the gap between a fallen humanity and a holy God and the suffering and the pain and the joy that comes with that And so he redirects them from self-seeking to self-denial, self-sacrifice, and suffering. This is reflected again when Jesus speaks of Paul. In Acts chapter 9, Jesus said concerning Paul, He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Wow, that's kind of heavy. You sign up for Christianity, that's not what you thought. That's why we're doing home groups. Later, Paul would write in Philippians 3, chapter 8, I count all things to be loss 
in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He would count it joy to lay everything down for Christ. Peter would go on to write in his first epistle, If you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Paul referred to this in Philippians chapter 3 as the fellowship of his sufferings. As Christians, we are called into wonderful and glorious things. We are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We're set free from self and we're set free from sin and we're made free to love God and to serve Him and to receive blessings from His hand. But we are also invited into the fellowship of suffering. We are also invited to join Him in the striving or the struggle against sin in this world and against evil as His ambassadors, as His representatives, as His tools, as His instruments, as His soldiers. And Paul would write to Timothy late in his life, Timothy, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And he would say, no soldier enlisted in active service entangles himself in the daily affairs of the world that he may please the one that enlisted him. Timothy, we are engaged in a battle. Be willing to lay down your life. Know what this means. Be willing to engage. Don't engage in just all the things that the world has to offer, but run the race in a way that would please the one whom enlisted you. Friends, these are not easy words. That is why when Jesus spoke such things, we're told in the Gospels that many of his disciples left them. Many of them bailed out and said, these things are too gnarly for us. We can't handle this. We can't deal with this. This is why through history, as Jesus said, count the cost. Many have counted the cost and found it too great and have bailed out on him. My prayer is that we would count the cost and dive in. That we would count the cost and draw nearer. That we would count the cost and say, God, it's too much for me. It's too great for me. It's overwhelming. And that we would open our arms to heaven and say, so God, fill me with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Empower me to be this witness. Empower me to be this life. Lord, may I decrease that you might increase in my life. After Pentecost, James and Peter and John and the guys finally learning the lesson. In Acts chapter 5, verses 40 through 42, they are flogged. That is to say, they are stripped naked. They are hung around a thing that is like a telephone pole. And they are whipped with a cat of nine tails from the back of their knees to the back of their neck. A cat of nine tails was nine leather strands with pieces of bone and metal woven into it. And they would be tied there naked and 39 times they were flogged. And that bone and that metal would wrap around and even rip the the flesh from their face and open up their back all the way down to the back of their knees. And we're told there in Acts chapter 5, they went their way rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his namesake. And they kept on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah. Now, there has been a transformation in their life. From squabbling about who is the greatest to saying thank you that we're counted worthy to suffer this way for his name's sake. Listen, Christians, we are blessed to be in America. Few of us will experience such things. But there are still many ways that if we're engaged in the gospel and in the moving forward of the kingdom, we will have to suffer for his name's sake. It might be reputation. It might be our own wants and desires. It might mean family. It might mean friends. It might mean prosperity. I don't know what it means for everyone. It's different for everybody. Understand that God loves you. He does not hate you. And it will become very clear 
as we move on here. Why he calls us to share in the fellowship of sufferings. James and John and Peter and Paul all learned what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Poor in spirit meant those who realized there was nothing good in them. Blessed are the meek and humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven shall be great. Do you see, do you understand that God loves them, that God loves you and me? That God wanted them to possess the kingdom. He wants you and I to possess the kingdom. That Jesus wants to reward them in heaven. He wants to reward you and I in heaven. That Jesus wanted to exalt them even if he, as He wants to exalt you and I. And so He had to redirect them from self-seeking to self-sacrifice. Because in the kingdom of God, the only way up is the way down. The only way to exaltation and to greatness in God's kingdom is through self-abasement and us decreasing and allowing Him to increase. That is the only way that it works in the kingdom of God. And self-sacrifice and self-seeking will never, never get us in the place in the kingdom of God where God wants us to be. Now, these are hard words, I know and understand. But for God to exalt them They had to humble themselves. Humility being the standard of glory in the kingdom. It says in Scripture from cover to cover, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. It is said in those very words from cover to cover. Second Samuel says, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Proverbs says, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. It says the same thing in Matthew. It says the same thing in Luke 1. Same thing in Luke 14. Same thing in Luke 18. James says the same thing in his epistle and Peter says the same thing in the fifth chapter of his epistle. Verse 6, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled but whoever humbles himself shall be exalted God has said these things to us because he loves us and he knows that the way of self-seeking is destruction there is a way that seems right to man but in the end it is death and so wanting to exalt us wanting to bless us, wanting to use us and transform us and free us from self. He tells us over and over and over again these lessons that the disciples never learned all the three years that they walked with them. But we have before us today in the fullness of their form in the Word of God. Martin Luther said an amazing thing. God created the world out of nothing. And as long as we are nothing, He can make something out of us. Isn't that wonderful? God created the world out of nothing. And as long as we are nothing, He can make something out of us. Now, this humbling of ourselves before God, it is accomplished through the act of serving. We're told in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, Paul writing, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. 
Peter, having learned so well, would write in his first epistle, chapter 4, verse 10, Each has been given a special gift. Use it, therefore, in the serving of one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. F.B. Meyer writes concerning these gifts. I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves, one above another, and the taller we grow, the easier we can reach them. Now, I find that God's gifts are on shelves, and the lower we stoop, the more we get. The way to humble ourselves is to serve one another and to serve God. Literally, as Jesus put it, the greatest of all, shall be the slave of all. Oh, whoa. It's a little stronger word, isn't it? Slave. Oh man, you see, a slave has no concern for his own glory. Ouch. A slave has no desires of his own. A slave does not promote himself. He does not go after his things. The slave promotes and goes after things for the one whom he serves. He is concerned with his master and his master alone. To go from a son of thunder to a slave of all, there's no other way but self-abasement. And here's what we find, Christians. Listen, I don't claim to have laid hold of it yet, but I have found in the little bit that I've done it that to get over myself is the greatest freedom that I have ever known. When I stop being worried about my glory, about my importance, about my position, about what people think about me, about my reputation, about my stuff, and I consider others as more important about than myself, and I consider the agenda of God, there isn't that the greatest freedom. The greatest freedom the world has ever known is to be mindless of self. God created the world out of nothing, and as long as we are nothing, He can make something out of us. I don't claim to have laid hold of it yet, but I want to. I want to humble myself under the mighty hand of God. Another reason to do it is because the Bible says over and over again that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I am in so much need of the grace of God. God's grace is his unmerited favor. God's grace is that thing which we have received where God just gives us blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing, and we know we don't deserve it. That is the grace of God. He's opposed to the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. We're told that also in the Bible from cover to cover. So because Jesus wants to give us grace, because he wants to exalt us to the proper place in his kingdom, because he wants to reward us in heaven, he tells us over and over again to humble ourselves. The second thing that Jesus told James and John here after their request as they were self-seeking sons of thunder is in verse 40. He said in verse 40 of Mark chapter 10, to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. Listen to me, very important lesson here. This is amazing. They simply said, Jesus, we we want to be the greatest leaders in the kingdom. We want to be leaders. And Jesus said, that's not mine to give. In other words, it's the Father's to give. We see, again, from cover to cover, that God has always chosen his leaders. God chooses his leaders. What Jesus was saying here to these men was, you can't seek that. Leadership in God's kingdom is not something you can go after. 
It's not like being the president of a company. It's not like being the leader of a club. It's not like being the best surfer on the team. It's not something you can go after. It is divinely doled out by the Father Himself. Jesus prayed all night, and then He chose the disciples. From cover to cover, God chooses His leaders. This is why God has always brought in the Old Testament and warns us in the New Testament about submitting to the leaders that He's put over us. Because any leadership is established by God. And therefore, it is the height of evil to strive after leadership. It's not for us to choose. It's not for us to go after. To strive after it is human nature. But the divine remedy for human nature is to serve others. And as we debase ourselves to the place of servant, of God and others, then he will exalt us to the proper place. For some, it may be a leader. For some, it may be other, some other area in the body of God. But we must not seek to be leaders. It is granted only by God. It is His sovereign choosing. And so He said in verse 43, Whoever wishes, knowing that people would want this, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave to all. So don't feel, um, you know, condemned this morning if you're like James and John, you're saying, I want to be a leader in the kingdom of God. I want to be great in the kingdom of God. I want to attempt great exploits. I want to lead many to righteousness that I might shine forth like the stars. I want to surrender my will and see God use my life greatly. That is not wrong. But the right way to go about it is to become the slave of all, to become the last. Andrew Murray said this, Humiliation is the only ladder to honor in God's kingdom. Humiliation is the only ladder to honor in God's kingdom. He also said this, At first it may appear hard. This is because of the pride that still counts itself something. If once we learn that to be nothing before God is the glory of the creature, the spirit of Jesus, the joy of heaven, we shall welcome with our whole heart the discipline we may have in serving even those who try or annoy us. I'm so challenged by the word of God today. But I want us to be challenged together to the point of action to serving one another, to consider others as more important than ourselves. Now, I preface this entire sermon by saying that no amount of teaching could cause this to happen. I can convince you from the scriptures that it is a right thing. I cannot make you do it. That's not my job. Only the Holy Spirit who is in you can bring this transformation. And if he did it in James and John, from sons of thunder to servants of all, he can do it in you and I. But we've got to covenant together. We've got to join together to submit ourselves. And we've got to come before the Holy Spirit and ponder, are there areas of my life that I am unsubmitted? Is there a part of me, listen, there is a part of me that loves to be served. And it is that part that I need to allow God to crucify over and over again day by day. 
There is a part of me that hates to get down and serve others, even those that annoy me. And it is that part that I need to nurture day by day in the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. It's just something we've got to be willing to do together as disciples. Jonathan Edwards, and I'll end with this quote, said, Nothing sets a person so far out of the devil's reach as humility. Nothing sets a person so far out of the devil's reach as humility. It was pride before God that brought Lucifer down to earth and has made him the mortal enemy of our souls. And he would love nothing more than to see God's church and God's people and God's soldiers fall to the same air. But it shall not be so in our midst. God, we ask that you would teach us to humble ourselves before you. I stand before my brothers and sisters here and confess before them that I am a proud man, that I can be so self-seeking and arrogant. And I just confess that. And again, God, I repent of it. And I ask that you would come and do a deep work of humility in my own heart. I ask for our congregation that you would come and do a deep work of humility in our hearts. That you would work a transformation. That you would teach us now what it means to humble ourselves before God and man. To seek the good of others. The only hope for a decreasing self is an increasing Christ in our lives. So Jesus, increase in our midst now. Increase in our hearts. Speak to that deep place where we err in pride and in sin. God, I am sorry for my pride. Who am I? You are God in heaven. You are high and exalted. And yet I know because you are satisfied in the sacrifice of Christ that you are not mad with us. That you are well pleased because of your son. And I know that you don't discipline us from anger, but from love and for our good and for your glory. And so Lord, because you do desire to use us and exalt us in your kingdom, Teach us now to be humble in the depths of our hearts. Teach us humility.